Hebrews chapter 1. Let's get started. Hebrews 1. Let's pray and then we'll get stuck in. Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you have uh, ordained us to be here in this time and this place. That, uh, Lord, with, with all the difficulties and trials and troubles around us, that nevertheless we can rejoice in you. We can rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us. We can rejoice that we live in a time when we are in the era where you speak through your Son. What a privilege it is. And as we again uh, come and look at Hebrews 1 and how much greater your Son is than the angels, may we again as we gaze upon him become more like him. Again, as we gaze upon him, may we be captivated by him. And again, as we gaze upon him, may his glory blind us to the temptations and the desires of this world around us. Father, may you bless us richly. May your spirit speak to us as we are in your word this morning. For your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Hebrews 1, here we go. We uh, left it last time with a, uh, uh, the first section of this, uh, this portion where the writer of the Hebrews, having done his great prologue, is now telling us, now, now that God is speaking in this era through his son, he's talking about how much greater his son is. And because in the Jewish culture of that day, the, the Jews gave such high place to the angels, there was a danger of almost over-venerating the angels. And so immediately as he leads in from the prologue, he starts to talk about the superiority of the Son of Jesus Christ to the angels. Last time he did that by means of quoting from Psalm 2 and quoting from first, uh, was it first, Second Samuel, I believe, and quoting from the, the psalm, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And this week we pick up in verse 7 where he continues this argument. We're not rushing through this, for the main reason is, is that in this book, more than almost any other in the New Testament, that emphasizes the superiority of the new covenant over the old, he nevertheless uses the old covenant to show the superiority of the new. And whenever he deals with Old Testament passages, we want to be digging into those passages to see uh, in context precisely what he's saying. And these ones this week aren't easy. They're, they're a little bit difficult, but we're going to work through them. So having spoken of the Son in verses 5 and 6, Verse 7 continues where he says, uh, of the angels. So now having had our focus on the sun, we have our focus on the angels. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And that is a quotation from Psalm 104. So you know what we're all doing now. We're turning to Psalm 104. We have three passages in the Old Testament this morning. This is passages 4, 5, and 6 from the Old Testament. The seventh one we'll do next week. So we're turning to Psalm 104. Now Psalm 104 is a long psalm. Um, I didn't want to read through these long ones and take up too much time with it, which is why I got David to ably read for us Psalm 102, where we're going a little later. So, so we're going to skim it a little briefly here. We're going to skim through it. But predominantly, this psalm in context, it's a, it's a, the songs, the, the, it's these uh, psalms in this region are songs of praise to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, if I haven't said this to you before, I'll probably say it a hundred times more, but when someone in the New Testament 
quote something from the Old Testament, they're not simply pointing us to that individual verse. Although the focus may be predominantly on that, they're pointing to the entirety of the context. And it's no coincidence that here in verses 1 and 2 already, we're seeing the exact same themes that we've seen in the prologue in Hebrews 1 already. Notice in verse 2, we have the reference to light, which we we saw about his radiance in uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. Stretching out the heavens like a tent, a reference to creation, which of course was a key, a key theme in the prologue as well. And then the creation theme continues. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariots. And so on it goes. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundation so it should never be moved. You make the springs gush forth in valleys. Verse 10, verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. That's something separate from creation that was also mentioned in the prologue. Jesus didn't only create the universe, but he sustains it as well. And there it is, the grass is growing for the livestock. How does grass grow for the livestock? Well, if you go to a science class, they'll tell you about the nitrogen cycle and the, the rains, the, the water cycle with rain and all these different reasons and the sun shining and the grass growing. But who brings the rain and who brings the sun and who keeps the earth moving and spinning and, and, and sustains everything? It's, it's God. And more specifically, it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. You know, can you just, just hold that thought for a minute. There is Jesus, sovereign creator of the universe, walking around Palestine in human flesh, and it rains. And he is the one who sustains the universe and brings the rain in his deity, and in his humanity, he gets wet. It's just, it's just kind of, you know... Philosophers could get lost in that for decades. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. But anyway, proceeding on. I'm getting distracted by this psalm. Uh, verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. Verse 19, he made the moons to mark the seasons and the sun it's time for, knows it's time for setting. And in having said all of these wonderful things about creation, he, can, he starts to conclude in verse 24, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In your wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then he goes off about the, the sea. Uh, again, the sea is great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. They go to the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Oh, I could get distracted by Leviathan. Leviathan, Leviathan. We'll save that for a Tuesday. We're, we're dealing, by the way, on Tuesday night studies, if you want to know more about angels, off the back of our Hebrew studies, this last Tuesday, we spent a lot of time talking about angels and demons. It was a great time talking about the angelic realm and dealing with that in more detail than we have time for here. And we touched on Leviathan briefly. And if you want to know what links Leviathan to the angels, you're going to have to come on Tuesday. Just a little, little plug there for you. Um, these, verse 27, all look to you to give them your food in season. And when all of this creation is, is, is taught about it, he concludes, um, he's talking about their, their sustaining. When you, verse 29, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die. They return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So not only does God control everything during the course of life, but God brings death and God brings life. God is sovereign over all of that as well, over, over life and death. And the conclusion finally, may the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
praise the Lord. So as we conclude this psalm to get our context, I want you to take note of a few things there. The, the, the psalm as a whole is clearly about creation. God creating, God sustaining creation, God being sovereign over life and death. All of these things are contained within this psalm. And the response is, is that we praise him. This is Romans 1, folks, right here. That every person on this planet has enough information to know that there is a God and that he is powerful. Why? Because of creation. The correct response to creation is the worship of God. We look at creation and we bow, not before creation, but before the one who created it and sustains it. That is the correct response. And it is because people refuse to do that that they are then judged. And so he says, may my meditation be pleasing to him, I rejoice in the Lord, let sinners be consumed and the wicked be no more. There will come a time when God's righteous judgment will not be met with dismay or tears, but with a hearty amen. Because God is who he is, and he created all things, and he's sovereign, he gets to choose life and death, and he gets to choose judgment. And because he is holy, there should be no sin in his sight. That is what his world is for. It was created to be a sinless world. So we have all of this going on in Psalm 104. I love going, to, we don't take enough time over these things, so it's good to see it. Now let's look at the quotation that is used in Hebrews. The quotation comes from verse uh, 4. So let's read verses 3. And, well, let's read from verse 1 again and just now we know where we're going with all of this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O, my, o, o Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering, with, uh, light as a garment, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. And then he lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind and he makes his messengers. Messengers is the same word as angels. Some versions will say messengers, some will say angels. It's the same word. He makes his messengers or angels winds, his ministers, servants, a flaming fire. While the bulk of the psalm is dealing with creation here on the earth and in the visible universe, these early verses, he kicks off the tales of creation and the, the worshipping of God for creation by talking about the creation of the angelic beings. And here it is, he's talking about these chambers on the waters, these clouds, his chariots. For those of you who were with us through the series on the visions in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, a lot of this language will be familiar to you. This is language that is familiar of the throne of God and of the angelic realm. It's interesting, the double repetition here of wind. Remember that the Hebrew word for wind, uh, ruach, is the same word for spirit. In fact, spirit, breath, and wind are all the same original word in the original. And the same is true in the Greek. The Greek word translated spirit means wind as well. And has an effect in the understanding of John chapter 3, but that's for another day. But So he's talking about spirit and wind and the clouds and the, the angelic realm, and he makes his messengers winds. The, 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 the angels are working with his spirit in ministering to people and also a flaming fire of judgment. The ministers and the, the Angels are paralleled here. They're wind and they're fire. They're angels and they're ministers. Now, why is he referencing this whole thing on creation? This is how it fits into Hebrews, okay? Hebrews has already told us that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of creation. So, having told us a bit more about the Son in contrast to the angels, he now goes to a psalm talking all about creation, which we now know that the Son did in the context of Hebrews, the sustaining of creation, which we know that the Son does in context of Hebrews. And he says, in this creation, remember that part of the creation that the Son did is angels. He's not just superior to the angels, he is the creator of the angels. 
and the angels are his ministers, aka his servants. You see, that's the relationship between the sun and angels. One is creator, one is creation. One is Lord, the others are servants. That's how it works. And by the way, because he creates the angels, that's another reminder to us that he is not just the Son of God, but he is God. Because God is the creator. So that's Psalm 104. We could have spent a bit more time there, but I know you've got to eat Mother's Day lunch at some point. So let's go to, let's go to uh, the next verse in Hebrews. He says, but of the Son, he says. Now that's crucial. We're going to go to Psalm 45 now. We're going to go and have a look at it so you can start turning to Psalm 45. But what is crucial, absolutely crucial to understand, is that in the book of Hebrews, as he quotes this, he's taking a shit. He's saying, hey, look at the angels. They're created. They're servants. And now he says, now look at the sun. This is what is said of the sun. That's important. We're going to come back to that. Okay. So, Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Now, this is initially... If you're someone at home who is now, and I hope you do this, by the way, folks at home, I hope that when you're reading your Bibles and you're reading your New Testaments and you come to an Old Testament quotation, sometimes your Bibles will have it in italics, some will have it in bold, some will have little footnotes to point you in that direction or a, a, a central margin of, of cross-references. I hope that when you're reading through your New Testament, you take the time to look at the Old Testament. And if you did that here, this might initially be confusing because Psalm 45 is a love song. I was really tempted to have David read this one, actually. <laughs> but I thought, I don't want to embarrass him too much. It's kind of like Song of Songs light, this psalm. You know, it's... Uh, it gets a little bit uh, frisky in places, shall we say. So why, why is the writer of Hebrews pointing us to a love poem? And why is the love poem in the book of Psalms? Well, let's have a look. Uh, my heart overflows with the pleasing theme, verse 1. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. I don't know about David, but I would struggle to read that out loud with a straight face, you know. I mean, isn't it strange that here we are in the Psalms where there's worship to God and there's some king and we're being told he's the most handsome of all men. You know, it's, it's not what you expect in the Bible, maybe anyway, let alone the writer of the Hebrews particularly pointing us to. But what it is, is that this is clearly a, a, a man who is, um, is a great man, a, a man who is loved, and it is, uh, it is a, a song of love where his, his um, wife, his beloved, is saying these great things about him. Uh, in your majesty, verse 4, uh, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness and let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Now I want you to see carefully. There is a transition that is happening in verse 4 and following. So when it says you're really handsome, it's clearly talking about the human king. But when we shift... When we shift in verse 4 to riding out victoriously, when we shift to truth, meekness, righteousness, when we, when we shift to the right hand and its power, when we shift to the crumbling of enemies, we're now talking about things that all apply to God. And if I was spending the entire sermon on Psalm 45, and trust me, I did play with that idea. We, we could go back to other old... Because the great thing about intertextuality, where the, the Bible references the Bible, is it's not just Old New Testament going back to the Old Testament, but here already in this psalm, there's multiple references to other Old Testament passages, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and what have you, where these themes are designed to point us to God. So this man is so great and mightyful. Is that a word? 
Mighty fall? I, it is now anyway. I've just made it up if it's not a real word. But he's so, he's so great and mighty that there are elements of him that are characterized in a similar way to God. In a similar way to God. Now, we think it's likely that this psalm, um, it's probably not David, one of his descendants, is a king, so that the, the line of kings comes from David. Um, and remember that the, the prophecy about the Davidic throne, those who are coming every Sunday morning, you know this because we've been talked about it last week, but the Davidic throne was promised an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. And we know that the son is that eternal king. So in the context of the Davidic kingdom and this king, it's as if verses 4 and 5 are shifting us from the man who is loved to the things that he does empowered by God, hinted at by the, the different terminology that is used of God elsewhere. And then when we come to verse 6, we have God addressed directly. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is, is the scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness, you hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of glad, gladness, pardon me, beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory places. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of the kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hands stands the queen in gold and of fear. Now this psalm, if you were to bother to take the time to read through rabbinical writings from centuries ago, and trust me, you don't want to go there, but if you were to take the time to do that, and you were to look at how the rabbis of history in Old Testament times, how they wrestled with this psalm, they struggled with it. Because here is this reference to God in the middle of a love poem. And as I've, as I've said to you, I think that the, what the psalmist is doing here is, is a shift in three stages. In the first stage, you have the man specifically, the handsome, great, mighty man. In the last stage, you have God specifically, clearly. Your throne, O God, is forever. And in the middle, you have this connection where the man who is a king has qualities of God because the kingdom is going to be eternal and will be eternally ruled by God. And that's your connection to go through. We're going from this king, essentially not so much to God as to the eternal king. Not God per se, but specifically the Messiah, the God-man, the eternal king who's going to sit on the Davidic throne. And that's how the, the psalm goes through. And after that, in verse 10, the daughters are to consider, uh, you know, to consider the king and how wonderful he is and, and so on and so forth. And the, uh, the uh, love song continues. And because of the connection early on in the psalm, by the time we come to the conclusion, verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, and therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. There is clearly a deliberate double entendre, as they say, where something is being said, well, you're such a mighty king, you're going to be remembered by nations around forever. And of course, that statement, though it may be true of the earthly king, now is going to be so much more true of the eternal king forever. And so those threads are brought back together at the end. That's how I understand the psalm. So with that understanding of the psalm in context, and I find it, by the way, I find it fascinating absolutely fascinating that this psalm was chosen. We're going to talk about why in a minute. Because you remember, if the, if, the, if the author has picked a passage to quote, if he's pointing to you know, the deity of Christ, the sonship of Christ, the, 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 the kingdom of Christ, there's multiple passages he could point to. So there's always a reason why he's pointed to the passage that he's pointed to. So in Hebrews, when he quotes this, he quotes um, verses 6 and 7. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So in the context of Psalm 45, the theme is the mighty king now and the mighty king to come. 
And here he is pointing out that this is the mighty king to come. The scepter of uprightness, that's the scepter that the king would hold. It's a, it's a figure of royalty, scepter of your kingdom. And then the, the focus, I think, here is in the, the verse 9 of Hebrews. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, this is what is said of the Son here. The Son is going to have this eternal throne. The Son is going to have this eternal kingdom. But He is going to reign in righteousness because He loves righteousness and He hates wickedness. This is our King. This is our God. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Oh, this is where it gets good. <laughs> this is where it gets good. The anointing with oil is used in the New Testament to be represent representative, a type, if you like, of the Holy Spirit. And we see with the ministry of Christ that though Christ had been alive on earth for however many years, and though he'd done some pretty amazing things on earth, you know, I mean, at 12 years old, he's in the temple teaching the rabbis. He clearly learned quickly. But as I pointed out to somebody the other day, I watched a YouTube video of a 12-year-old boy juggling Rubik's Cubes and solving three of them while he juggled them. So 12-year-olds can be pretty amazing if they put their minds to it. But you see, something different happened in the life of Christ. He was God for the whole way through. He was God from conception, through, through the womb, through childhood. He was God. Absolutely. But at his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him and he is anointed, thus fulfilling the scriptures that talk about the chosen one of God being anointed. I've got about God putting his Spirit upon him. Because the Old Testament saints, if they ever did mighty things, they did them because the Spirit came upon them. Now, Christ could have done anything in the power of his deity, but God ordained it that he would do it in the power of his spirit through his humanity. And that's fascinating, and it's part of a much longer discussion. But, but the anointing with oil is, is mentioned here, and, and the anointing with oil is beyond your companions. That is the fullness of the spirit that is spoken about. You see, Moses had the spirit, but for Christ, because of his sinlessness, the work of the spirit through him was so much greater. And he loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness. But here's the thing I really want you to note. We have this man... This king, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And yet it is said of him, and it is of him, notice it is of him, verse 8, but of the Son he says, what does he say of the Son? He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now I know some translations differ here, I've been plowing through all the variations and the, the, the Greek structure this week. I can promise you the only way to legitimately really translate this passage is to translate it as a reference to God. If you're a grammar buff, that's the vocative. It's just, you know, they're talking to God. God, your throne is forever. Who's he speaking to? Verse 8, the Son. And yet, in verse 9... It's, therefore, God, your God, anoints you with oil. Who is the one who sent the Spirit to descend on Christ? It was the Father. The Father anointed the Son. The Father is Christ's God. Your God. And yet, Christ, who is not the Father, distinct from the Father, is called, O God. I mean, there is the Trinity. There's the deity of Christ. And not just the deity of Christ, the Trinity as a whole, because the, 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 that's the Spirit who's represented by the oil. We, we've got the Trinity and basic Trinitarian doctrine in a love poem from the Psalms. He takes this theme, and he's not taking it out of context. The, listen, this is why I wanted to read it to you first in context. The, the New Testament author is not taking the Old Testament and saying, oh, there's a nice saying about God the Father. Let's go and apply it to Jesus because we want to make him God. That's not what's going on at all. 
The, the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament so much better than we realize. He picks Psalm 45 because it's clearly showing a picture of the life of Christ with the anointing by the Spirit that we would see and it's saying that this is God. And he's not just saying it's God because in the context of the psalm, the theme is earthly king and the continuation of the kingdom to the eternal king who is himself God. I showed you that in the context of the psalm. And of course, ladies, no matter how glorious your king is, and no matter how handsome he is, and no matter how mighty he is, and no matter how wonderful he is, and some of you newlyweds are going to probably be thinking about that from a very biased perspective, no matter how wonderful you think your king is, there is a king who will come who is more wonderful than anyone else, who will cause us to love him, to worship him more than anyone else. Now this is the context in comparison with Psalm 104 and the angels. So let's just put those two together right now, shall we? Quickly. Psalm 104, Jesus creates the angelic realm and they serve him. That's who they are. And who's he? He's the eternal king who sits on the throne forever and rules over those beings. And listen, I've read to you, guys, guys who've been here for a few months, if you've heard through the vision series, you know all too well, when we see Christ on the throne, high and lifted up, who's surrounding him? The angelic beings, shouting, holy, 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 worshipping him day and night. That's who's there around him. And what the author of Hebrews has done is combine those concepts together and say, you really want to compare the sun with the angels? You see how much greater he is? You see how there is no comparison? You don't want to give your attention to angels? Do you know how many people in the church today, particularly in the charismatic wing, are distracted by angels and demons? They want to find angels and demons under every, you know, under every cushion, under every couch. You know, oh, there's an angel here, there's a demon there. Cast out this demon. Wait for this angel to... It's... Guys, we have the Son! We have Christ! If you and your Christian faith are at the point where you think that an angel appearing before you and speaking to you is better than you, early in the morning, groggy-eyed, opening up your Bible, you haven't got it yet. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, this is greater. The days of angels and prophets was a lesser day. You're going to have an angel appear to you? He's just a created being who worships the Creator. But the Creator is speaking to you directly through His Word. What a privileged time we live in. So get in your Bibles, folks. Do you know one thing I've been encouraged to do of late, which, is, which I would encourage you to do, is when you've got a bit of extra time, pick up your Bible and read a book. I don't mean pick up your Bible and then read a book, <laughs> like another book by somebody else, you know. What I mean is, just read through a whole one. Just read through Isaiah. Read through Jeremiah. Read through Daniel. Just pick up a book of the Bible and read through it from beginning to end. No commentaries, no, just, just flow, just read it through. Just let the Word minister to you. Let's become people of the Word. Let's appreciate the riches that we have. I've got an eye on the clock and I've got to keep moving here. So let's go to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. In the Hebrews text, we just simply have the connecting word and. And uh, that means that we're still pointy, still pointing to the sun in contrast to the angels. So Psalm 102. Oh boy, this is a goodie. I've overdone my time a little bit, so I'm going to have to rush this. I'm glad David read it for us already today. But this is contrastly, and by the way, this is deliberate. The, the, notice how the author go, is quoting about the sun. He goes to a love poem in Psalm 45, and then from a love poem, he goes to a psalm of lament. What a contrast. Somebody enamored by their beloved and writing a love song, 
to somebody who just wants their, their suffering and their turmoil just to come to an end, just begging God for mercy. So I won't read through it, David has, and I'll just reference it in passing, but it starts off, Hear my prayer, O God, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call. Guys, when you are suffering, this is what you do. This psalm is a wonderful psalm. If you're suffering, what you do is you cry out to God. That's who you cry out to. The Israelites, who didn't want their manna, their problem was not that they had a problem with the manna, their problem was they took their problem to everybody else, rather than to their knees. Now, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to do that? Where do you take your suffering? You take it to the throne. You take it to God. And you beg God to, to remove it. And look, he says, speedily. He said, God, I, I know you do your things in your way, in your time, but I need you to solve this now. There is an urgency and there is a, a pain in suffering and it is natural and normal and right and godly for us to cry out to God in tears and beg him to take our suffering from us. Verses 3 through 11 are the description of his suffering. Again, we've read it already, so we won't take too much, but you know, uh, my days pass away like smoke, verse 3. My loud groaning in verse 5. Lying awake, verse 7. And he you know, I eat ashes like bread, I mingle tears with my drink. Verses verse 10, because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. Guys, it is an unpopular and unpalatable doctrine, but the scripture is consistent. God is sovereign even through the midst of the worst of our suffering. It's, it's a difficult thing. I'm, I'm, it's horrible mentioning it in passing and skimming over it. It's something that needs more time. I will simply say this. If God can allow the worst sin in history that ever happened and will ever happen, the murder of his son on the cross, if he can allow that to happen and use it to bring the greatest blessing and the greatest glory in the history of humanity then we can trust him with our trials. That's all I'll say on that. So, God is the one, he recognises the indignation and anger of God. It's not so much that God is punishing him so much as he sees God's sovereignty over his suffering. And he ends his statement, verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like the grass. Now notice verse 12, notice the but. By the way, but is one of the most important words in the whole Bible. It's, it's incredibly important. When you see it, you look at it. It's a contrast. It takes us from one thing to another. It's part of the whole structure of how things are put together. You know, Paul will say, hey, these false teachers are like this, Timothy, but you... And then you're like this. this is, it's these contrastive terms that are so important. And... The psalmist here is doing what we have to do in our suffering. Notice, he has taken verses 3 to 11. My, my math ain't so good, but I think that's probably eight verses or so. He's got eight verses there where he is basically just going over and over his suffering. You know what? I see this routinely in the lament psalms. There are some in the church who would say when you're suffering, don't focus on your suffering. Don't express your suffering. You know what? I come from England where bottling it up and stiff upper lip, old boy, is thoroughly encouraged. Oh, let's not make a fuss about it. Stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff. Nonsense. Rubbish. Hoodlum. Balderdash. It's just, it's just crazy. Listen, if you're suffering and you're trying to come to terms with it, vocalize it. It helps. I'm, this is going on and that is going on. I'm overwhelmed by this. I can't cope with that. It's all too much. I'm pain here. I'm suffering. I'm crying. And eventually you'll go, <sighs> and the bit that you do before the breath is cool. You're okay. It's fine. But there has to be the breath. And when you've had that breath and when you've got it off your chest, you then say, but you, O oh Lord, are enthroned 
forever. You're remembered throughout generations. Your servants hold dear her stones, verse 14. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. The kings of the earth will fear your glory. God builds up Zion. He appears in glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. That's one of the best passages in the whole of Psalms, folks. That is a person whose life is a mess, who's in agony, who's suffering, who's at the brink of death. And he says, but you're God and you're great and that's good enough for me. I recognize my nothingness. I'm a, I'm a, you know, look, look at us. I'm a human being whose life in the span of history is but a breath. And already, look, I've, I didn't have glasses when I came here. My body's withering, it's failing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to end up dead. And God lives forever. People will forget about me. And nations will worship God forever. We're nothing. Oh, that our brief and otherwise pointless lives would bring glory to God and serve his almighty purposes. Oh. Listen, be the best in your profession make a ton of money, have your name inscribed on buildings, and it's all wood, hay, and stubble. But what you do for God will live eternally. The psalmist expressed his pain. It's human, it's natural, it's normal to do that. Even Jesus said, oh God, take this cup from me. But when you've taken your breath, remember who God is. And look how beautifully, look how beautifully he wraps that up in verse 17, where he takes the whole theme of the glory of God, him building on Zion, that, that you guys who did the vision series will know that's a reference to the kingdom being established on earth, and then it says, he regards the prayer of the destitute, he does not despise their prayer. Do you see that lovely blend? I am nothing, you're God, you're everything. Here's me and my suffering, but I need to remember who you are. You're the one I cry to, and you can take it or leave it. You can, you can punish me more, cause my suffering to increase. You can relieve it, you can do as you wish, because you're God. You're sovereign. I'm nothing. But you're the God who loves the destitute. You're the God who cares for widows and orphans. You're the God who would not despise the prayer of the suffering. Isn't that one? I just love these psalms. That's just so precious, guys. And then verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That's us, guys. We're that generation that wasn't yet created here now praising the Lord. But more so, in fact, if you're going to be more accurate in context, he's talking about a generation even beyond. He looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked to the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, where the peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship God. You know, guys, I hope if you were here for Isaiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, you recognize this again and again and again. This is the theme that God is going to rule and reign on earth and we're going to be there worshipping him. And while the generation he might most specifically be looking at is the end time generation, this is us as well. We are a generation who was not there at the time, a generation that has come in the future, a generation that cried out to God through our groans when we were imprisoned by sin, a generation who was doomed to die and yet though we wither and though we die we will be there with him in Zion, worshipping with the whole earth. How's about that? That's good stuff. And I, I just love the way he develops this through. You, you think, you know, here I am getting excited, here you are all going amen and nodding and yeah. And, and we're in a psalm of lament, guys. Why? Because when you suffer, you turn to God. 
When God feathers your nest, gives you everything you want, life goes smoothly, what do you do? You just go on through life. But you see, when you touch the dark places, when you know what it is to suffer, you not only turn to God, but when God eases your pain, when God touches you, when he reaches out in the midst of your suffering, you see God in a way that you would never see had you never hit those depths. Or to put it more poetically, when you've been in the darkness, the light shines even more brightly. He comes back to himself in verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He shortened my days. I, God, I say, do not take me, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. So he, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. He acknowledges how great God is. He acknowledges that God is, is the one who is going to have those who are doomed to die worship him forever. But even though he understands eternal life, he's like, I'm young. I'm not ready to die yet. Let me be here a while longer. But even in that, he acknowledges that God is the one who lives forever. We're the ones who die. He's the one who lives. That's the contrast. Then we come to verse 25, which is crucial. Why? Well, firstly, because it's the concluding paragraph of the psalm. And secondly, and more importantly, it's the, one that's, the verses that are quoted in Hebrews. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. So, by the way, now we're dealing with this. He's quoting this in Hebrews. We've got all of this lovely context we've been working through to just bring all the, the, um, the flavor, as it were, out of this last paragraph. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. And they will pass away... But you are the same. Your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Listen, what is this saying to us? Saying this. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, and this is where we end our sermon this morning. He's saying, Jesus is the one he says, of the Son. All three verses, by the way, he's quoted. All three passages are pointing to the deity of Christ. He is, oh, your throne, O oh God, is forever. You laid the foundation. So the Son, he is saying, you, Lord, referring to God, and he's saying this is the Son, laid the foundations of the earth. So Jesus is the unchangeable God in a universe that changes. I don't know if tomorrow I'm going to feel fantastic and I'm, great things are going to happen to me. Or if tomorrow I'm going to be diagnosed with a fatal disease. I've got no idea if tomorrow I'm going to get great news that I'll be rejoicing over or tomorrow I'm going to get hit by a bus. We, we have no idea what's coming. We're not sovereign. God's sovereign. The universe, <coughs> part of me, is moving by his sovereign hand and we know not what comes and it shifts and it turns and we have no idea we have no idea it will twist and turn and twist and turn and, and we can't predict we can't know what's going to happen in the world or in our own lives but God is unchanging he's the one who laid the foundations and who holds it together and as he deals with that theme the heavens are the work of your hand. He's the one holding it. He says, they will perish. We are going to die. Our world that we live in will one day die. Revelation 6 says it will be rolled up like a garment. Everything in this earth that we love will come to an end. Everyone we know in, in this life will come to an end. But he doesn't. They will perish, but you remain. Your years have no end. And the verse ends, the children of your servants, and get the link, first passage quoted, the angels were what? Ministers, servants. 
the children of your servants, we're servants too, with that latter generation shall dwell secure, their offspring shall be established before you. Generation after generation of people who love God, though their lives might be turned upside down, turned around, difficulties, struggles and trials, God is sovereign through it all. He is eternal. We can be eternal, have eternal life through our association with the Son. As human beings, we just die. Our life is just a breath and gone. But Jesus is eternal. And when we place our faith in him, we become one with him. He lives in us by his spirit. And so we have eternal life in and through him. And we are the ones who will dwell with him forever. Angels, you can't touch that. That's our son. That's our Messiah. That's our Lord. That is our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the gift of your son. Father, I pray that as we spend these weeks just slowly considering your son, seeing him, seeing him in the Old Testament, the deity of Jesus, not some doctrine invented by church councils 200 years after his death and resurrection, but spoken of by prophets centuries before him. As we gaze upon him, Lord, again, let that world lose its, its glimmer. May our love be for the Son and for him alone. May we worship him with our hearts, with our lips, with our lives. Amen.